about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it upon the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come up to, to, come up to, de- to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, they stood, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zyre, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your God nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my God or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, sorry, and these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisor, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the furnace? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. 
He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation of all language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The second Bible reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, on page 981 of the Pew Bibles. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Hi again, friends. Uh, we are thinking about God's sovereignty through the book of Daniel. It's a funny thing that happened to the people of God when they were ripped out of their homeland and taken to Babylon. Their vision of God grew, actually, rather than getting smaller or lesser. Their vision of God was not just a God who looked after them in the promised land, but a God who could find them and hold them anywhere in all the earth. And that's kind of what the book of Daniel is all about, this, this sovereign God who reigns in Babylon, who reigns over every place, every king, every nation. But when we get to Daniel chapter 3, we see that in action. And we start to peer into how that might actually work for our lives. Daniel 3 is a really interesting story in the book of Daniel. First of all, Daniel isn't in it, which is interesting. The three amigos are instead, uh, if you've seen that great film from the 80s. And uh, they're kind of ordinary Jewish young boys, really. And and this story, there's not much to it. It's fairly simple. It's full of really long lists that pad it out. uh, But there's not actually much that happens. It's a story designed to be told around the campfire for Sunday school, uh, for little Jewish boys and little Christian girls. It's the kind of story that you could put in your back pocket and pull out when you needed it. That's what Daniel 3 is in the book of Daniel. And really what it shows us is what it actually means to live a life trusting in the sovereignty of God. And that not just being a piece of theology. 
Lots of Christians and lots of Jewish uh, people have found strength from these story, this story in particular in the way they've lived life. Uh, one of those people was Martin Luther King Jr., in fact. Uh, in 1963, when he started the nonviolent resistance called uh, the Birmingham Campaign Against Segregation, where they sat in places they weren't supposed to, uh, he was arrested, uh, along with others, uh, and placed in Birmingham jail. And what happened after that was uh, there was a group of white pastors, they were white, uh, eight of them, uh, who wrote uh, condemning him and what he'd done. Uh, basically, they thought that really uh, a Christian pastor shouldn't be involved with such civil disobedience, even if it was nonviolent. And so when he was in prison, he wrote this really interesting letter called the Birmingham Letter. You should go look at it online. It's very interesting. And in the middle of it, he quotes from this story or alludes to this story. He says, of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was seen sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. It's so interesting for him to draw the line between his resistance to racial inequality and this story from the Old Testament, but he's right. This is a story about radical refusal, about standing on the sovereignty of God defiantly against culture and against the powers that be. It's a remarkable story and what it calls us to in that way. It summons us to not only know about the sovereignty of God, but to stand upon it defiantly. So I want to talk about this evening, how that works. Three things about that. Uh, The first thing is this, that really what you see these three men doing in this chapter is very simple, and it's the same that's called to us in every Christian in every age, and that's refusing the pressure to bow. Refusing the pressure to bow is the first thing. Have a look. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Now, this is quite interesting because if you remember the last chapter, he has a dream about a statue that's destroyed by a stone from heaven. So kind of Inception style, he had a dream about a statue and now decides to make one. Maybe that's where the plot of Inception comes from. My theory for this evening. So it's very strange, and it kind of makes you think, why is Nebuchadnezzar making a statue when God has just told him that his kingdom's going to end? Interesting. He builds this statue. But what's interesting about this statue is what he does with it. He summons all of the rulers in verse 2 to come to the dedication of the image he had set up, which is a phrase repeated through the whole chapter, emphasizing this is made up by him. He made it. It's not a God thing. It's a him thing. And he summons everyone to come and hang out. And then he makes a declaration that as soon as all these strange instruments start playing, everyone's to worship the image. What we have here is a very simple uh, picture of state-enforced religion. Where there are many nations, many peoples, many languages involved... But they are being summoned to forget about their gods and when Nebuchadnezzar asks to instead worship this image, which we learn later in the chapter is connected to his gods, right? Very simple thing. And and what happens in, in this chapter that's interesting with these long laborious lists is the long lists build this sort of rhythm through the chapter. 
they're, they're actually part of the way the narrator is telling the story. And so you have this list of satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, this kind of list, and they all get summoned. And then the satraps, precepts, governors, advisors, treasurers, and judges all come. Call, response. It said, well, as soon as the instruments play, you are to bow. And then the instruments play, and everyone bows. It's got a rhythm to it. Nebuchadnezzar says, everyone jumps. It's automatic. It's complete conformity and control of every nation in his empire and every person. It's almost like there's this magnetic, powerful pull in his kingdom toward worshipping this idol. Now, it's worth acknowledging that, really, Daniel 3 is not what we face in Sydney. It's really not. Despite things getting more complicated, perhaps, for Christians in Australia, really, we have nothing happening like this. There are many Christians for whom in the world today this is true. When we were researching the devotions for the, uh, the Persecuted Church series, uh, I was looking at the top 40 nations that are of persecuted Christians. There's only two types of oppression that happen amongst those 40 nations. Either Islamic oppression, or in a couple of cases, Buddhist oppression, and then megalomaniac dictators. And for the millions of persecuted Christians in the world, most of them, it is state-enforced religion, like Daniel 3, that they are living under. And like Daniel, uh, like Daniel's compatriots, the threat is real. There were actually blazing furnaces in the, uh, in the ancient Near East where people were executed. Happened in Egypt, happened in Babylon, uh, happened in Greece a bit later as well. And, and this threat of immediately being incinerated was brutal enough to push everyone into line in Daniel's day, and it is brutal enough to push many people into line in our day. We don't face that. But it's remarkable, though, what happens in this chapter because there's this rhythm of call and response, call and response, and then it, the, these accusers come and they say, there are these three, three men who, when the instruments play, they refuse to bow. And in the chapter where there's this rhythm in the lists, these three men break the rhythm of an entire empire through their one act of refusal. It's beautifully simple and quiet and defiant. And it's a very simple, clear-cut case for God's people in every age and every time. When the powers that be ask you to worship something other than your God, you are to refuse to bow. Now, knowing that we don't live in a Daniel 3 empire... It's still kind of true, though, isn't it, that there are powers in our world, powers in our city, corporations perhaps, or cultural, I don't know, that cultural power that exists that really want us to bow to different ideologies, different ideas, different ways of doing life, different visions of the good life. Our city is built on the worship of money, on the worship of image, on the worship of career, on the worship of property. We are tempted to believe that these things are ultimate and powerful for our city and for our lives. And if we're honest, there's a magnetism to these things. There is a pull on our hearts to worship. 
Maybe it's not the fear of persecution driving us, but maybe it's the fear of missing out on the good life of our city. Friends, we are to discern the moments when our culture is asking for us to bow and to instead defiantly refuse. Refusing to bow, that's the first thing. But the question is, well, how, do you, how does that actually work? How does it that when you realize that your culture is calling you to an idolatry and instead you want to worship the one true God, well, how, how does that work and what do you do with that? And really the second thing we see here, and this is what we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing, is that they trust the sovereign hands of God. They trust the sovereign hands of God. It's not very complicated, their defiance. It's not culturally savvy or subtle or nuanced. They just have a grand confidence in the bigness of their God. And you see that in the, the, the key encounter. This is the center of the whole chapter, the interrogation scene between Nebuchadnezzar and the three. Uh, and they're kind of in furious... Nebuchadnezzar is really emotional this whole chapter. Verse 13, he's furious with rage and he summons them and they come in. And he says to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, etc., if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. It's so interesting, Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance. Because he wants control over them, probably. Interesting. But the next question he asks, the next statement he makes, is what the whole chapter hinges on. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's in that question that we realize that this chapter is actually not about three men who defied an empire. It's actually not. It's actually about a megalomaniac and the one true God. It's about a contest between two people and whose hand is stronger. And Nebuchadnezzar has thrown down the the gauntlet to the, the living God himself and declared to these three men that there is no one who can rescue from him. It's in that these three men stand up and they say something remarkable in defiance of Nebuchadnezzar. They throw the gauntlet back, so to speak. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Which I think is the most amazing thing they say. Because I want to defend myself about lots of little things all day long to most people. uh, Much less than this. And I want to defend my faith to my culture daily. And the misconceptions that I feel happening. But... Isn't it interesting that these three men, though defiant and confident, don't feel the need to defend themselves? Maybe like our Lord Jesus who was put on trial and didn't even defend himself. Interesting stance. They say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve, he's able to deliver us. Listen, if you're going to throw down the gauntlet to our God, then let us tell you about our God. Our God is able to rescue us from hands of people who are crazy like you. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What do we see happening here? We see these three men standing solely on the sovereignty of God. God is so sovereign that of course he can rescue. 
but so sovereign and free that they don't know whether he will. Because he hasn't promised to. And they can't tell him what to do. Because that's how big and strong and mighty he is. And so there they stand before a powerful king, confident only that their God reigns. It's remarkable. You know, this is the logic of Christian martyrdom in these few verses. It's very different to Islamic martyrdom. Islamic martyrdom is the logic of sacrifice and reward. Action that's then given a a heavenly reward. Logic of Christian martyrdom is passive surrender. Passive surrender and then gracious deliverance. Completely different things. And these three men stand solely in this place, passively confident in the God they love. Now, friend, if someone were to look at your life or our lives, would they see the same confidence? Would they see similar spaces of decision-making where you are radically standing, defiantly standing on the sovereignty of God rather than the idols of our city. I don't know what that might mean for you. For me, I was thinking about this during the week and I think it might just mean being a bit more serene about everything. Because in the middle of a city and a very anxious time, in a very anxious world, with very anxious news feeds, The one thing I'm told most frequently is to be afraid of what is happening and what will happen. And maybe standing defiantly on the sovereignty of God is actually just being serene. Defiantly serene. In a world that doesn't work and is awful at times, that my God still reigns. And that even things go south, He will continue to reign. Maybe it looks like not trying to control so much of your life. Because maybe it's okay for life to be out of control if he reigns. Maybe it's okay for things not always to work in the way you want them to if he is the God in charge of all things. Maybe it means refusing to trust the economic powers around you like everyone else. The rise and fall of the housing market the ideologies we think we need to believe to get along well in the world, the values of a liberal democracy we pretend are discipleship, what would it look like for you to stand radically on the sovereignty of God in life? Trusting that He has you. What would that look like? That's what they do here. But the third thing this passage gives us, and this is the thing on which everything hangs, really. And the only reason why we can be confident in a sovereign God is because in the end, we are in the hands of a God who saves. Friend, you are in the hand of a God who saves. I love what happens next. Uh, The furnace gets extra hot, apparently, and really strong soldiers come. You know, Nebuchadnezzar uses the best tools he has to get the job done. He binds them up and he throws them in. God doesn't deliver them from the furnace. 
Nebuchadnezzar looking on, maybe with glee, watching these people die who defied him, calls comically out, weren't there three men we tied up? Weren't there three? Because I can see four people playing around in the fire. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Someone in Cottage Church just before described this moment as the miracle of miracles in the Bible. The idea of being inside a raging furnace and walking around freely, untouched and unharmed, is just insane. It is just so remarkably insane because fire is that great force that should take us completely. We are made to burn. We are made of the stuff that turns into cinders. And for them to be in the furnace is for them to be preserved and saved in just the most remarkable and incredible way. The deliverance given to them is rightly called by Nebuchadnezzar as a salvation that no other God could give. A deliverance, a rescue that no other God could give. Uh, they're summoned out and, and there's not, nothing is singed. All the hairs of their head are there. Their robes aren't scorched. And there's not even like fire on them. Like I can stand on King Street for five minutes with cigarette smoke and get a, a smell of smoke on me. And they have nothing. It's remarkable. God doesn't save them from the fire, but he saves them through the fire. And it's almost more majestic because he does. It's an incredible act of deliverance. This is the God who saves. But you might be looking at this and thinking, well, what about all the Christians living Daniel 3 today who got executed? What about the fact that when I refuse to bow, my career might end? Their career didn't end. They get promoted at the end of the story. They get a better job, right? When I refuse to bow, I lose my reputation. When I refuse to bow, I lose money. When I refuse to bow, I don't get to live out the things I want to live out. When I refuse to bow, there's loss. Where's the salvation for me, for my martyred brothers and sisters? Are we really in the hand of the God who saves? You know, it's really interesting. Um, in the catacombs under, under Rome of the earliest Christian burial sites, Above some of the, the tombs are etchings of this story. People who were killed in persecutions lying dead in tombs. And somehow, the early believers connected this story to the hope of being raised from the dead. And that's very true because actually at the end of Daniel is one of the clearest statements about resurrection in the whole Bible. In, in uh, Daniel 12 verse 2, it talks about multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, though Believers might walk through this life refusing to bow and suffer even the worst of costs. Their lives taken, their livelihoods taken, their reputations taken, their shame put upon them. Though these things happen, there will be a day when they are raised up and delivered. When they are raised up without the smell of smoke and with every hair on their head unscorched, unharmed, and free. 
You know, when I was thinking about the way that God saves in this chapter, I thought of a present my mum gave me when I was 15. She went to Europe uh, and came back with a scorpion trapped in amber, which was the best thing ever when I was 15. Um, not going to lie. And I keep it on my desk, and I love picking it up. Um, and holding it and just laughing a little bit about this poor, poor scorpion that just like didn't know what was going to happen, got caught in amber, then got put in the ground of Europe, right, for hundreds of years, while wars were waged above it, while all kinds of madness happened, while the, the earth was torn up around them, while all kinds of kingdoms rose and f- fell and all kind of evil happened. There this little scorpion was safe and preserved. You see, when you take the the furnace seriously, you realize that really, no matter what happens in this life to you, you are encased in amber. You are in the hand of the God who saves. He will preserve you, even through the fire, and raise you again. You are in the hand of the God who saves. So you can refuse to bow. You know, Jesus, when he walked on earth, in, recorded in Luke twelve forty nine, said that he came to kindle a fire and that he couldn't wait until the fire was done. Referring not to anything he would do, but the thing that would be done to him, to his crucifixion. You see, Jesus came down from heaven to throw himself into the furnace of God's wrath suffering everlasting contempt that you might rise one day delivered, rescued and whole to everlasting life. See, when your heart knows that you're in the hands of that God, the sovereignty of that God, the power, the rescue, the salvation of that God, it doesn't matter what anyone can take from you in this life. So friends, rest in his hands and refuse to bow. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us take this story in our back pockets this evening, into our workplaces tomorrow, into our weeks, into the things you would have for us, into our city, Father. And when we feel the tug of the pretty things that want us to bow in worship to things that aren't you. We pray that trusting in your loving, sovereign, and saving arms, we would willingly bear cost rather than bow. Probe us, search us, we pray this evening, for those things that we are tempted to bow to. And Lord, make us confident through our Lord Jesus who died and was raised again for us. Make us confident in the hands, your hands, that's safe. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.